Close your eyes, Josh. Take a deep breath and relax. Focus on the spot in the center of your forehead. The universe is deathless. Is deathless because having no finite self, it stays infinite. A sound man, by not advancing himself, stays the further ahead of himself. Welcome to Now Playing's Insidious Retrospective Series. There's something wrong with this place. I'm not imagining it. I can feel it. It's, it's like a sickness. Hosted by Stuart. He sees things no living person is supposed to see. Arnie. This is nothing like being dead. I know. And Marjorie. Well, the universe picked a fight with the wrong chick. sure if you're ready to hear this yet but unfortunately i can't waste any time easing you into it this movie review will contain detailed plot spoilers and harsh language that's fine gentlemen listener discretion is advised today we're discussing insidious starring patrick wilson rose byrne barbara hershey and directed by james wan i'm arnie the haunted host of now playing steward in l.a and I'm Marjorie. Marjorie, you're back! I am! I come back for the horror movies. Specifically the ghost movies. Which <laughs> I hate. I do not like ghost movies. They scare the crap out of me. Well, you love to hate because you and I share the same affinity for Poltergeist. It was a series that you and I did together. Maybe my favorite one. We got to cover the trilogy. A couple uh, donation series back. Yeah, I loved Poltergeist. And I still love it to this day. I'll watch it when it's ever on. But... Paranormal activity, those kinds of things, scare the bejesus out of me. Well, it's interesting you bring that one up because it comes from the wheelhouse. What we're watching today is the follow-up, in some respects, to the paranormal activity phenomenon from Blumhouse Productions. It's kind of weird. We're so big on horror, but we haven't covered any Blumhouse until now. I would say that they're rivaling new line cinemas in the 80s for creating a stable of horror franchises. Truthfully, I haven't seen any of them. Paranormal Activity, the first couple just looked really uninteresting. And Stuart, you did a mini review on the Facebook page, Low Those Many Years Ago, that made me decide I never needed to see it. I think it was called a fight. A lot of people disagreed with me on it. So I was coming into this not because of Paranormal Activity, but because of Saw. I'm a Saw fan, and Marjorie, I, and Jacob did the Saw franchise back when that was in its latter years. And this is the director and writer who created the original Saw. And I thought they did such a good reinvention of that genre. They basically popularized the what they call torture porn genre that I was really interested to see what they could do to the ghost story. I've been hit or miss on ghosts. My experience with recent ghosts, if it's not paranormal activity and that, it's been a little bit older, but The Ring and The Grudge and that kind of J-horror stuff that was remade in America. Yeah, you know, I'm not a, a Blumhouse virgin, but I haven't seen a lot of them. I feel like I need to because I am a horror fan and they do have this rep. Somehow they keep doing it. They strike gold by keeping costs low. They put out these $2 million, $3 million movies 
They're usually PG-13 so that they can get the widest possible audience and they make a gross and have sequels. I think I'm afraid that once we start watching them, we're just going to have, <laughs> it's going to fill up the future schedules I'm now playing. The weirdest thing for me is that you talk about how much money they make, Stuart. I was doing some research on this. They call this the most profitable film of 2011. I'd heard of it, but because of who put it out and everything, I expected a cast of no names. I was shocked. Rose Byrne, Patrick Wilson, Lynn Shay, Oscar winner Barbara Hershey. I know it's an amazing cast for, I guess they don't take much. They're all uh, willing to do a low budget horror movie. And they're all willing to come back for the sequel that we're building up to in this two-part retrospective. Purge, Sinister. I haven't seen many of them. Paranormal Activity, that was the one that I've seen. Only the original. And Lords of Salem, which was the Rob Zombie thing. Uh, But other than that, I know their reputation. I'm curious as I approach Insidious to see if they've got what it takes. I have actually not seen any of their movies. I stayed away from Paranormal Activity because I don't like those found footage movies too much. And I really don't like ghost stories where the ghosts are mean. In Poltergeist, they weren't too mean. They were still kind of kindly and pretty and sparkly. Once they get vengeful and sinister, I, I don't like that because, well, I'll be honest, we have a ghost in our house and it freaks the crap out of me. Oh. <laughs> I'm intrigued. Our, our ghost's name is Sylvester, and so far all he does is slam doors, and he has made himself appear to Arnie once and knocked on stuff. I heard the knocking. Arnie heard the knocking. I thought it was him. He thought it was me. Arnie turned around, saw a guy in a hat that was not me, and then the guy was gone. Wow. There was a 90-some-year-old man who used to live in this house who died in this house, and we do wonder if he's still here because his room... For the first few months that we moved in, the door would randomly slam. Wow. And the dogs bark at absolutely nothing. They will go to a corner of a room and never the same corner. It's not like there's a pipe behind it and just bark at air. Oh, man, you need to set up some cameras. You could have a horror franchise. You need to capitalize on this. I have seen paranormal activity, and let me tell you, it's little more than slamming doors and lights flickering and a figure in the shadows. I think you've got a script there, Arnie. (laughs) I think Blumhouse would return this phone call from you. Yeah, possibly. So it's kind of a personal thing, and he doesn't bother me. I don't bother him. It works out that way. Well, then I'm really curious to see what you're going to think of this one, because, it, yeah, this is what they're really doing here. More than any of their other projects, it's about a haunted house, and it's about, yeah, doing poltergeist. I, I think we're going to talk about that spielberg Toby Hooper movie as we go through the film. Well, why delay it any longer? Stuart, give us the plot. Meet the Lamberts, a typical suburban family settling into a new home. Husband Josh is a workaholic college professor. Wife Renee is an aspiring musician and stay-at-home mother of three. There's newborn baby Callie, forgotten middle child Foster. And then there's imaginative eldest son Dalton, who lapses into a mysterious coma shortly after investigating strange noises in the attic. Doctors can find no medical explanation for why Dalton won't wake up and release him from the hospital after three months of fruitless study. The comatose child's return is accompanied by a rash of supernatural phenomenon. Angry voices scream at Renee through a baby monitor, bloody claw prints appear on Dalton's sheets, and a stringy-haired phantom passes through the bedroom window to attack the woman in her sleep. Renee tries to convince her husband that they bought a haunted house. Josh is skeptical, but eventually relocates the family to a smaller place across town. 
But even in the new home, the ghosts keep appearing in multitudes. And Josh's mother, Lorraine, who was helping them unpack, has a waking vision of a red-faced demon standing behind her son. She calls in Elise, a medium friend who once protected Josh from the ghost of a veiled woman. Josh doesn't remember the childhood supernatural encounter because Elise hypnotized him to forget it, as well as his gift for astral projection. See, the men in the Lambert family all have this natural ability to travel to other dimensions only using the powers of their mind. And Dalton was practicing this very talent in his sleep when he got lost in a spirit world referred to as the Further. Now Josh must learn to astral project again and bring his son home safe before insidious spirits take full possession of the boy's comatose body. Elise, using the dubious talents of a couple of nerdy ghost hunters, gets Josh started down the path into the further, which looks identical to the suburbia the Lamberts currently occupy, except that everything is kind of blue and shadowy and filled with grinning evil spirits. Josh eventually finds Dalton chained up in the attic of their former home, the prisoner of an angry red-faced demon. It chases father and son back to their bodies and awaiting family, hissing all the way, but Josh and Dalton awaken, the ghosts leave the house, and Renee is leave to have her family reunited. That is until she discovers Elise strangled in the living room next to a digital camera containing photographic evidence that her husband is now possessed by that veiled woman that stalked him from his childhood. Josh sneaks up behind his wife to announce, they're here. I mean, I'm right here <laughs> as credits roll. So yeah, you mentioned Poltergeist and God that's in my notes here. How Poltergeist <laughs> can we get? There's a father and mother in their 30s with three young kids and a house that's haunted. So they bring in a medium and the medium has two male younger assistants. It's plagiarism, right? <laughs> I, yeah, I'm thinking Poltergeist and Elise is like maybe French for Tangina. I don't know. <laughs> and that's a mixed bag for me. On one hand, I'm very protective of Poltergeist. It is my favorite movie from childhood with the exception of maybe Alien. and I am. Don't want anyone to rip it off. But at the same time, if people are able to tap into what was done there, I mean, great. I mean, let's face it, the Poltergeist sequels, I gave them a pass at the time, but I'm well aware they're not particularly great movies. And I would like to see the sequel to Poltergeist that it deserves. Maybe Insidious can be it. What's funny is I wasn't expecting a sequel to... Or a remake of Poltergeist here. Thought that was coming, when is that, next year, the year after? Depends on who you ask. It was supposed to be out two years ago. But yes, <laughs> they do promise us Sam Raimi, I think, is still trying to get that project made. But I was expecting a scary ghost story like the one Marjorie envisioned. And the opening credits set that mood perfectly. I think, truthfully, the opening credits are the most artful thing in this whole movie. The way it looks like it's a still photo, but... Everyone has this strange element moving that you get to like, where's Waldo? Well, maybe you will like paranormal activity. It set a bad taste in my mouth, I gotta say, because I am not a fan of found footage. I find it really tiresome when there's no story and it's just all about, ooh, what's going on in the background? Uh, you know, it's the opening credits. So I didn't mind it. But knowing that this movie came from the people, they're crowing all over the video box and all the ads that I saw for this. We made paranormal activity. I don't want to be reminded of that. And this opening does remind me of that. So it's not starting off on a good foot. I'm hoping that unlike paranormal activity, 
I'm going to quickly like the characters that I meet here, the family. It's very important that I feel some of my freeling love with the Lamberts as we get to know them. I was okay on the opening. At first, I thought it was kind of artful and kind of neat. And then it started to feel like the opening sequence of a video game. You know how they make you watch those movies and have cutscenes? That's what it felt like to me. I see now, after I've seen the movie, that a lot of it's relevant to the movie, but I didn't know it at the time. Is it? Yeah. Are, are these stuff that we see again? I know. I saw there were hooves, and clearly there is a creature... The beast, as it were, that's the one you really want to avoid. Yeah. But a lot of it, I don't know, there's a lot of light bulbs and stuff. I didn't really yeah. trace it back to anything that we'll see later. There's a lot of the light bulbs. I've noticed the hooves, the handprints were the same where the bloody handprints run, the kids' sheets, the clock, the Phil Spector-looking lady with the candle. <laughs> Is it the hair? Yes. <laughs> and the crazy face. It is played by a man. It should be pointed out that the one of the phantoms, this old lady, is actually in drag. It's a, it's a male character. So who knows? Maybe it was Phil Spector. There are actually a lot of drag over themes in this because there was another drag queen in there, too. Did you notice a man in drag? I guess we'll get into it. You'll have to point it out. Yeah, I can't tell what it was signifying. Now, having heard your plot summary, you know what I really would have loved this movie to do? And there's a lot, I think, of missed opportunities here. It's not helping this movie that not too long ago, Stuart, over on our Silver Donation feed, we did all of those Edgar Wright films, those dense films that are rewarded from rewatching. I saw a lot of things they could have done here that would have had that Edgar Wright ability. I'll talk about them. But one would be this opening credits. How cool would it have been if we saw spooky shit, but it was Josh's childhood? And we got to see that old lady getting closer to him and not know till an hour into the movie what it was that was scaring us in the opening credits. Oh, I like it. That's very good. But you know what? That would make Josh's backstory more central then maybe it really is. Uh, we'll talk about it as we get into it, but Josh has a long history of being stalked by one ghost, but all the other ones that we meet, including the primary one, they're new to the Lambert family. They're coming along basically because of Dalton. Everything is framed around the eldest child this time. It's not a Carol Ann. It's an older boy instead of a young girl, but they have three children, and only one of them matters. <laughs> <laughs> and two of them disappear. Yeah, Dana and Robbie never really did that much, but uh, it's pretty also true here of Foster and baby Callie. I'm glad you got Callie's name, because in my notes, I just put the baby. I didn't even know the gender. Yeah, I was <laughs> unsure of the baby's name completely. It took a lot of digging. Believe me, people even on the internet didn't have it. I had to go back to the footage and wait. I think it was like one drawing or something like that. <laughs> one moment. It's not important. I'm convinced the baby is absolutely not in this movie for any other reason than to have a baby monitor, which they kind of treat like the television static of the television set in Poltergeist. It's a way that the ghost used to freak out the adults here. It's really just so that they can give us that moment. But the baby itself, I'm not even sure who's watching it by the end of this movie. <laughs> okay, good. I'm glad it wasn't just me. I thought I missed something. But yeah, because we all know ghosts love CBs. You know, breaker, breaker, <laughs> I'm haunting you. They're really technical. You guys overlook that fact. They know how to use like iPads and everything. Mm-hmm. Well, they got a lot of free time. But I think that the baby had a second purpose because this first act of the film is very long and very slow. But 
I said I liked these opening credits, and in the beginning, we are introduced to the family in this house. The scariest thing we see is books that fell off a shelf. I am convinced that the whole reason there's a baby is because, scientifically, a baby crying is one of the sounds that puts people most on edge. It's like this primal instinct. We're supposed to want to help the baby. It's supposed to be ingrained in our DNA. And so I think by having this nonstop, incessant crying for 20 minutes was there to heighten our senses. You're onto something there, but I also think it's a very clever misdirect. These people know that the older horror fans know that they're doing Poltergeist. And if you remember that, Carol Ann was born in the house. That's what made her a target. Later, we'll see a spirit standing over the crib. I think we're supposed to think that it is about getting the baby because, you know, it's a newborn in a house here. We're supposed to be paying attention to the baby so that we can be surprised when it's Dalton as the one that goes into the coma. I mean, honestly, I didn't know how the terror was going to manifest itself. You're right. These opening scenes, it's it's very languid. I actually kind of like the way that it's structured, or rather that it's not structured, and we just get a, a sense of unease here as, yeah, things are moved off the shelf and noises in the attic, and I just don't know what's happening. I never once thought it was the baby because there's not much time spent on the baby. I mean, the older kid I forgot was there for the longest time. The baby I was reminded of because of the baby monitor. But I think that the baby monitor was just the result of having the baby in a way for us to hear what's going on. I completely agree with that. But I actually thought it was just going to be a general haunting at first. I didn't pick up on it's going to be one of the kids. But if you go back and look at it, the middle kid is the only one who gets any screen time or any quality time with the parents. I think you got that reversed. Dalton's the oldest. Is he oldest? See, I, yeah. d- I don't even know what the hell these kids are. The other two are <laughs> yeah. so unfleshed out. I know one's an infant and one's not. Admittedly, I could tell them by name. I didn't know specifically which one was older or younger either. At one point, Foster wins an award and the mom's like, why didn't you tell us? <laughs> I'm like, because you don't pay any attention to him. I mean, it's obvious that he's so unimportant to this movie. I wonder why they had him here. Again, I wonder if it's a misdirect. We're supposed to think it could be about him later. They do something early. I observed it because I paid attention to every little beat here. The dad comes home with a gift that he gives to this middle kid, Foster. And I for I laugh now. I think it's a pity token for him not <laughs> getting to be in the movie. But I also wonder, is this preference? Does the dad like the middle kid more or rather... Is there something about Dalton that he's avoiding or that is uncomfortable? Because we'll learn that Dalton has the power that he was taught to shun. Honestly, I just thought the dad was a dick. I thought that's what was going on is he's just a jackass. He doesn't want to deal with the kids. His wife's a stay-at-home mom who, quote-unquote, writes music, wink, wink. And Was she a piano teacher, too? She's a musician. She writes music. They never said. All I know is she stays at home with the kids and he's still pissed off. She's composing songs like someone is going to listen to them. So I have to think that she's at least got a YouTube channel up of her performing. (laughs) Maybe, yeah. I just thought he was a jerk. Honestly, I agree. I see what you're saying, Stuart. It would be wonderful if it was a character trait that... The father sees so much of the son in him. Go back to Road to Perdition. The father realizes the son is like him, and for reasons he doesn't know, he prefers the other child. You know, he sees something he doesn't like in himself in the boy, some suppressed memory of astral projection. Maybe he psychically knows this boy can do what he could do that got him in trouble. But none of that's in this movie. 
what we get in this movie is, yeah, I honestly thought the father was cheating because he's never home. He's gone all the time. He leaves them all alone. I thought that the father was going to be as absent a character as the middle child. Right. I thought this would be all about the mother facing down the ghost. I mean, how much is that the trope? The mother protecting the child, the woman against the danger. I could have never expected that act three would be Josh the hero. And again, I think that's by design. I think, yeah, look at Poltergeist. It did become about Jo Beth Williams going in to rescue Carol Ann. The father was a, an avoider as well, and that meant he sat on the sidelines. It meant he was the less trustworthy parent. And here, it's the character arc. It's what we're going to learn. We're not supposed to know or particularly like Josh because we, we've got to see his story unfold. We're going to learn that mystery and then hopefully come around to him as he becomes the hero to this family. Renee gets forgotten, but in the beginning here, I think it's her story about, yeah, being a stay-at-home mom in a new house full of ghosts. But I must say, for whatever she does, she must be bringing in some cash because it's a gorgeous house. And I know he can't afford that on a professor's salary. Uh, like most Hollywood productions, people live far beyond their means. I was wondering if that was going to come into play, too. You know, with the housing crisis being what it was, were we going to find out that they got this house for a steal? Was part of the reason why they were being haunted was the fact that they took advantage of former owners or something? You know, that's usually a part of a haunted house story is the back story of the house. But, of course, it's not the house that's haunted. That's actually a tagline they use on the poster, on the box. I didn't pay attention to it, but it's not a haunted house. It's a haunted child. Right, and sadly I had some of this spoiled for me, because watching this on DVD, there's a picture of Dylan on the cover, and he's looking evil, and it says, this time it's not the house that's haunted. So, the DVD cover gave away so much, admittedly, I really hoped this was going to go Pet cemetery. I thought that he'd get possessed, and now I want to play with Chew. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I got some early vibes of Exorcist as well. Uh, one of the first things that Regan experiences when she's playing with the Ouija board is noises in the attic. And that's sort of the play. If there's any reason why these spirits decide to come for Dalton when they do, it's because he hears noises and goes up there and they grab him or, or something. He falls. Yeah, it's never really explained what happens to him in the attic. Yeah, yeah, the ladder broke. But I didn't think that's what really happened. I thought the dad was saying that and the kid was just being quiet because something scared the crap out of him. I thought that was a ruse and a red herring. You guys didn't think that? No, I thought that there was something definitely in the dark. I presumed that the ghost that was going to come for Dalton or, or the family was there. And we indeed, we'll find out in the climax, this is where he's kept away. It is where the beast first lays eyes on him and where, where he keeps his soul incarcerated. And actually, if you go back, guys, the mom broke the ladder, if you recall, turning on the light. Sure. But he fell down to, I don't know, it was all very weird. Yeah. It's a cutaway. You know, we were having a moment with the parents downstairs. They hear the scream. They come up. He's fine. And they put him to bed. And then he's not fine. So, yeah, maybe it's an exorcist story, Arnie. Maybe he is going to have the demon in him. He's going to wake up. He'll start projectile vomiting. Who knows what? But I'm getting poltergeist. I'm getting exorcist here in equal doses in this first act. I wish I was seeing a lot of that. I Not knowing exactly where the story was going to go, found myself really wishing it would get there. You know, but when we're... 20 minutes into a 90-minute movie, and the biggest scare is a kid bumps his head on a ladder? I'm wanting a little something, and part of it is I'm just not connecting with these characters. The father is absent. The mother, Renee, 
I like Rose Byrne in a lot of stuff, primarily X-Men First Class, but she's a good actress. Here, I just think she's given nothing to do. Everything she does is so rote. This isn't a found footage movie. It might as well be, because we're just watching her cook. We're watching her play piano. No, no. I mean, I get your point, but there is a difference. If this were all cameras that were set up in their house and I was watching them have a relationship with taping themselves, I would not like these people. I think because I naturally like these actors, I've seen them in other things, and they just carry a good vibe, and they're convincing in their love. I mean, in little moments, I believe that they're family. You know, the fact that the dad is putting on some kind of cream around his eyes before he goes to bed at night, the fact that she's having a fight with the phone company, there's a naturalism. It's not quite as good as Poltergeist, but I believe that this is a functional family unit, and I want to see them succeed. I want to see them do okay here. So I'm with them as characters. And I like slow build-up, but I think we're all in agreement. The 25 minutes before he falls into the coma, now what? You really do need to step up the pace now that, of course, the doctors can't find out what's wrong with him. We know it's something mystical. We need it, it to transpire right now. Yeah, I think part of the problem I'm having is they're not even able to hint at horror during this first 25 minutes. I mean, the books get knocked down, and I guess that's a demon that knows Dalton is astrally projecting is kind of just hanging out because the boy's away from the body, but really, the ghosts don't come in mass until he's in a coma, and nothing really bad happens until he's in a coma. But finally, the boy does fall into a coma, and the movie... The second act, my favorite act of the film, is where we start getting some of these haunting scares. And there's just something about these when done right and filmed the right way, the sound effects going the way they are, the voices coming through the baby monitor, you know? You're straining to make out the words, they're intentionally muffled, and you're just trying to hear them, and the little glimpses in the background. Try as I might, you put me in a dark theater with this on a screen, I'm gonna get a little jumpy. Because of the way they did a lot of the scares like that, once I figured out what was going on, I thought that I had missed a whole bunch and the first part was frightening and I somehow just didn't see it. But I guess now you're telling me it didn't happen. I didn't see it. I think it's uh, Exorcist Terrors. I mean, and you did have a similar complaint, Arnie. On that show, there is a large amount of time devoted to banal jumps. Things that are false scares, you know, uh, quick moments that don't really seem to have any significance. A vandalized statue at a church down the street, or lots of medical procedures on Regan's brain. I mean, I'm cooler with that kind of setup than you are. I liked it okay. It's a slow burn. But you're right. Once we finally get into the ghosts, I think it's working. I think that these people know how to do a horror setup here. I, I don't know that the story is working, but there's scares a plenty i mean i'm on edge i think one of the strongest jumps comes when we actually get an attack you know up to a certain point i don't know that the ghosts are going to do anything but when the skeletal face guy comes through the window at the wife i'm worried for her yeah that's really well done the way he's outside the window and pacing and then all of a sudden he's inside the window i think that was really well done i'm gonna call out james wan I think he does really well with his camera work and his horror setups. In Saw and in here, I think that he just has a way of filming it that 
brings me in. I mean, the original Saw, yeah, even when I saw it the first time, I found some of its concepts laughable, but there was no doubt that he was also filming things in a way that felt visceral and transported me into the movie. And during the second act, I am definitely there. And yeah, you're talking about all the scenes that are getting to me. That one did make me jump. Now, I had trouble and I couldn't see what was wrong with that guy's face, but you guys are saying it's skeletal? Actually, on some of the behind-the-scene features, James Wan says it's always changing. That There's times where they paint it on and it does look skeletal. They changed the makeup effects so that it would look different at different points. The idea is you were never to know what was wrong with the guy. Okay, then that worked because I could not figure it out at all. And I was totally missing it. And I'm like, why can't I see his face? What is it? I thought he was just like some long hair dude. Well, he is. You are absolutely correct. Throughout this entire movie, when we get to the end, I know nothing more about him then than I do here in this jump. So the scare is good. The character, not so much. The story, I wish he had a backstory. I wish a lot of the ghosts that we see that look so cool actually had more to them than their look. Like the demon who was incredibly easily defeated, which we'll talk about. Darth Maul? Yes, Darth Maul. I thought that immediately, the very first flash we get of the demon, I thought it was a one-time thing. I did think that the ghosts were going to keep changing, and I thought somebody put Darth Maul behind Josh. I love that jump. That's my favorite jump in the whole movie of like, oh my god, the way it's set up. It's kind of a lynch scare. I I saw him do something similar in Mulholland Drive, but whatever. It's great. I loved it. Yeah, now that you mentioned lynch, I also think about like the pasty-faced man from... Lost Highway, you know, that was a little spectral himself there at the party. and Right. And Lynch loves ambiguity, doesn't need to explain most of why the things are doing what they're doing, and that's why they're scary. I think Juan is taking that cue. He just wants to get to you. He's only giving you enough information to scare you. He doesn't want to reveal who these characters are. I mean, what Juan calls this thing in the DVD extra materials is lipstick face demon because that's literally the makeup they use to give him that look and he's played by the composer of the film it's a real uh, group effort here the screenwriter has a part in here the composer has a part in here i i feel like uh it was almost a homemade production here a lot of people wearing multiple hats there was a composer i honestly thought that they put a electrified cat on a keyboard <laughs> and speaking of that atonal noise they call a score. Again, I think that Juan is really trying to use sound. I think one of the most effective scenes for me was the one where that security system is going off. And they have, like, the system cranked to 11 on that one, and it is just pulsing in my head. They keep all of the sound on this pretty low, and it's one of those scenes where if I wasn't trying to have the experience they wanted me to, I'd actually have turned down the volume during it, because... It's really getting me on edge. We have a security system in case any of our stalkers try to come after us. And it's loud, but it ain't that loud. No, that was ear piercing. And it really added to that scene. However, I kept thinking, why don't you dial 911? They didn't think it was a ghost at this time. The husband's very not believing still. Renee is, but 911. I think the security system should call it automatically if it's set off that long. Yeah, and it's important to point out here, they're fighting. He's not even in the bedroom with her. He's been growing distant this whole time. We've seen scenes of him calling from school saying, I'm held up with meetings, can't get there, lying. Because what he actually does is just sit there and brood. And we even see some black and white footage of his son. We'll learn later, I guess, that he was 
masterly projectioning at that time. But his absenteeism is caused a real rift between wife and husband, and he's sleeping on the couch. Yeah. Did you notice when he was sleeping in the classroom, though, they did a little thing behind him in the classroom, behind the very well-branded Macintosh laptop, there was nothing. And then he kind of falls asleep, and there's a chalk drawing of Billy the puppet from Saw. And then he wakes back up and Billy's gone off the chalkboard. No, I'm, I totally missed that. That's kind of fun. Little cute Easter egg there to stick in there. This movie is filled with that kind of stuff. So I'm torn. You know, I'm seeing a lot of derivative scares, but I'm seeing effective scares. And I'm seeing a lot of cool looking creatures, but I'm not really learning anything about them. And I guess we're supposed to think up until the 35 minute mark that it's all about the house. We start to like Josh because he relents. He finally tells Renee, all right, let's go to a new house. And the demons come with them. The spirits are with them. It is not the house. It is the boy. When she's doing that first scene in the house, did you notice that little kid with the hat on in the laundry room as she walks by? Actually, in the house, just sitting still? Yeah, when she's walking through because her music's playing and it changes... When she walks by their laundry room, that kid is standing in there with that hat. No, I didn't see that. There's no movement, no nothing. And I didn't connect it because I'm like, well, that's weird. Is that a coat rack? And then when they showed the kid running through the house, I'm like, oh, that was in the laundry room. I love that about this act of the film. And it gets to the point where we start noticing things. Like we were watching it and they're coddling the baby and we see the window and we're like, Is that a face in the window? You remember the three men and a baby ghost thing where there was the standee of Ted Danson that everybody thought was the ghost of some dead teenager? It was an urban myth. I remember it being told that, yes, there was a ghost in three men and the baby and no one noticed until the movie was released. It was completely fraudulent. But, yeah, I remember it. It was like that. I don't think they intended to have a ghost in the window. I think there was, like, maybe a teddy bear on the windowsill. But... This movie has so much background stuff going on during the second act that I start again. Yeah, where's Waldo for every scene trying to find where the scare is? And I wouldn't doubt that I only caught 25% of them. If I were to return to this movie, and we'll find out in the recommends if I will, this would be the area that I would be very tempted to freeze frame. And this is how found footage movies subsist. This is why they're invented. That's exactly it. So that you can replay the footage and see things that you missed the first time it ran through. This is, Marjorie, I think you pointed it out, a live action found footage movie. They're just not doing the camera trick. But they've essentially made paranormal activity without the cheap black and white footage. And because I'm not having to watch it through that vantage point, And because I like these actors, it's playing a lot better. I think it's all the difference in the world that we're not watching smeary, grainy video. Agreed completely. Oh, that part of the reason I don't like it is it makes me sick. Yeah, the shaky cam Mm -hmm. and the conceit of it. I have seen too many found footage films, and I don't think I would have agreed to be on this retrospective if this was one of them, honestly. I just don't like them. I know in advance, not recommend. Probably, If all the paranormal activities are like that, I can pretty much say, down the line, not recommend. So this is really engrossing me because it's cinematic. The washed out colors add to the ghostly quality and the fact that these people are smart enough to move. Yeah, yeah, you respect them. They're not dumb. 
if you were in a house and all these things were happening to them, they could have written some bullshit thing about, oh, we can't move because Dalton can't be moved because he's comatose. They can move him. They moved him into the house. They move him out of the house. I think that that is the right choice here. It makes us respect them. And yes, it also reveals that, in fact, it's not the house at all. Now, like Poltergeist, which was the central mystery, I'll boil it down for those that may not have seen it recently. Spoiler alert! (laughs) The suburbia was built atop a graveyard, and it was filled with lots of wandering spirits who weren't necessarily angry, but needed a light to dwell upon, and that light was a small child. I think it's very similar here. I think that's what Dalton plays for much of these spooks that are floating in and out of here. They don't want to hurt him. They just are drawn to him and thus they're filling up the house. But there is one. It's called the Beast in Poltergeist and it's this lipstick face demon here that actually wants to take control. Possession of the child. Now I got from Elise the Tangina of Insidious (laughs) that actually all the demons here are ghosts wanted to take control of Dalton. It's just the demon was winning the race. It was the most powerful. It was the one with the red face. But all of them wanted the body. That's why they were there. But, yeah, that's too many ghosts. That Then they needed to cut this down. That just wouldn't work. I mean, how are they all going to possess the child? Well, no, not that they all wanted to at once, but it was like a race to see who could get the body fully at first is the way I took it. But the problem is it doesn't explain how they're doing this, why the lipstick demon's winning, why is a demon winning over just a regular ghost, why is it only bad ghosts trying to do it, because they all seem to be malicious. I don't know, that kid was just kind of running around having a game. I mean, I don't necessarily think that any of them meant any real harm. What about the skeletal guy? Okay. They were all insidious, Stuart. (laughs) I must confess, you know, the titling of this movie, if you look at any of the artwork, for reasons unknown, they make the S and the I red, where all the other lettering is white. It makes me think of C, like Spanish. Every time you say insidious, I'm like, no, senor, it's insidious. (laughs) But yes, they are insidious. I suppose you're right. I'll concede that. That's funny, because I thought it was just a play like insid, inside inside of us, you know, inside of us. <laughs> Maybe, but I don't know. Because I, I, the, the title's meaningless, right? I mean, come on, it's just a word. It's just what they do. It's sinister. It's insidious. It's, it's executive yeah. decision. It's, yeah. you know, any of these <laughs> annoyingly bland titles. It's it's what looks good on the poster. Open Merriam-Webster to a thesaurus page and call it a title. Okay, but I'll go with what you're saying. It, it wasn't clear to me as I was watching the movie, but upon reflection, all of them are evil. Every single ghost that we see has evil in their past and has evil intentions for Dalton. I didn't get that watching this, but okay. I think that that makes it very, very confusing then. And I question the choice about having so many ghosts when obviously the one to care about is Lipstick Face. I completely agree with that. Although they trick us because we're also supposed to care about Veilhead. I don't know. Does she have a better name? The old lady? Yeah. I'll go with Veilhead. I mean, she's the first one we see. In the very beginning of the opening credits, she blows out a candle. She's the one who starts us off. She's the one who will finish us off when we get to the climax. She is actually victorious where lipstick face fails. And I'm not positive that all of these ghosts had malicious intent for Dalton so much as 
they were greedy. They've sensed a body. They could have life again. Yeah, I think it works in that way. I think if you wanted to make that clear, it should have been shown, not told. A lot of the things that we understand, all of the things we understand, if we understand anything about the second act, comes from the new character that's brought in here. That, yes, Barbara Hershey, Josh's mom, says, I've had this happen before, and let me bring in the person that fixed it back in the past when you were a boy, and brings in Bob Shea's wife. I saw Lynn Shea in the opening credits, and I was torn. On the one hand, I'm like, is that the woman from Kingpin and Nightmare on Elm Street? I mean, she does almost anything you want her to, Mm -hmm. but on the other hand, (laughs) she's... Up there in years, and the last time I saw her, she wasn't looking so good. She looks the same age, whether it's now or Kingpin. So, yeah. I, regardless of how old she actually is, she appears to not have aged a bit. Now, if she looked really old when she was young, I think that might be the case. But I was excited. I like her. She always plays quirky characters. She's fun. She was just like Tangina, a little bit weird. They made it quirky. A little taller. <laughs> yeah, a little taller. Maybe six inches or so. No, a couple feet. Yeah. But I wish that she had that Tangina air about her. The way Tangina spoke, that weird nasally drawl, that made the character in addition to the look. Lin Shay, she can play weird. I mean, I've seen her as Magda and There's Something About Mary, and I've seen her in really bad horror films. I believe she was in that 2001 Maniac. She was with Robert Englund. Yeah. So... I know she can do quirky. Here, she's playing it almost too normal, which, on the one hand, it's refreshing. Having the mediums always be Whoopi Goldberg and Ghost could get old. But, on the other hand, I could use a little quirkiness here, and instead of it coming in Lin Shay, it comes in her two Geek Squad assistants. Yeah, I think the idea was that they've been scaring us so much that they needed to bring in comedy. And Tangina worked in very much the same way in Poltergeist, that you wanted a laugh. You wanted a character that, uh, you know, makes you laugh. I think you're right. It's the supporting characters. You can't possibly trust anybody that comes into your house with Viewmaster slides and says, I'm going to find ghosts here. But Specs and Tucker, they're the... Tweedledee and Tweedledum of this enterprise here. I'm not even sure that they do much, but one of them is the screenwriter, so I think he just wrote himself apart. Well, he was also the star of Saw, which he also wrote. Was he the star, or was he just a plot device? He was the one chained to the toilet. Yeah, that's not the star. Carrie Elways is a star. Yeah. I thought Danny Glover was the star of that one, but it's been a while since I've seen Saw. And Lee Whannell has a comedic quality to him. I think he had that pretty much in Saw. It helped him there. I like him as the comic relief. I'm not overly familiar with the other guy. He had one of those familiar faces. I've probably seen him on TV or something. But they do have this good back and forth. I enjoy their banter. It's okay. I wish they had more to do. Like I said, I laughed about the Viewmaster. That was a nice touch. The idea that it could be simple. That finding ghosts doesn't have to be about having all this tech, all these high-tech computers. And I mean, that would have been the way to go, is that we designed all of this instrumentation. Here, they literally just have different slides of UV filtration that they use to go around the house, and that's how they're going to find something here. I wish they did more, and I wish that we saw more of their interplay here. But I like the quality that they bring to this movie. This vibe changes in the second half of the film, and they're part of the good of that change. Just so you guys know, Tucker in 2007 was voted one of the world's sexiest people. A lot must have happened in those six years. (laughs) 
Who's doing the voting? It's by Who Weekly Magazine. So who is exactly correct? <laughs> exactly. I think he came up with that himself. He is the writer of the group. He's the one that's going to publish the book. Specs, of course, is the one doing the photography. No, you got that fl- flipped, actually. Specs is the one writing. What? Yeah. Yeah. That's so confusing. Why would they do that? <laughs> because, because he was the right screenwriter and he wanted the bigger part. Yeah, he wanted to do it all. I don't even think the other guy did one damn thing or even had a line of dialogue. No, he did because a picture's worth a thousand words. I know he said at least that. Yeah. Okay, all right, you're probably right. My only problem with these two guys is I'm starting to notice a pattern to the scares. Like, when they're doing the Viewmaster slides, I just knew their beats. They always did the same thing. Like, normal, 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 scare! Normal, 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 scare! And so, (laughs) when he's going through the Viewmaster slides, I'm like, yep, nothing, yep, nothing, yep, nothing. Scary twins, all right, knew what was coming. (laughs) You know, and James Wan in the DVD extra said, when they did the scares... They wanted them to be earned. He didn't want to have any false scares. You know, the kind of crap where people go and open the closet and it's the cats. No cats. No pussy scares? Yes. (laughs) When it jumps out to scare you, it should be a frightening object. It should not be a false scare. And I think that's respectable here. But this whole movie is predicated on so much of that. It would be nice to learn about it. It would be nice to now have the horror come from a place of knowledge. To feel like, oh... That's what it is. We do get a little bit about it, but only about one specter, Veilhead. We learn that she is long history with Josh in photography. And I don't understand her plot, because as I understand this, the reason Dalton is susceptible is because he has left his body, right? He's asleep. He's astrally projecting. That is the reason why he is in danger of being possessed. I think I know where you're going with this. So, yes, when Josh is in these photographs, Josh is fully present in his own body. So what's the point of this woman sneaking up behind him and she's like moving so glacially slow? I mean, how far apart are these pictures taken? She's gotten maybe six inches closer. I say if ghosts need to learn how to technology, they should probably learn how this picture thing works so that they can avoid this detection in the future. Well, (laughs) give that as it may, what I take it is this, Arnie. If you astrally project at all, you are susceptible for a haunting. The whole idea of going into the spirit world invites, when you return, bringing along a friend. And that as this kid was astrally projecting, he got the fancy of this veil head and that she just... I don't know why she could only be seen in photographs, but was, yes, you're right, creaking towards them in the weeks and weeks and weeks since he had been developing astral projection. It, would it make more sense if he had been an injury and been comatose? Uh, that might have been a bit too much like the Dalton storyline, but I think that, yes, they could have done even more to articulate the whys. Who this woman was, how she might have might have found him. I wanted that. Did you think you were going to get it? I didn't think so at all, but I was curious why there was only one ghost following him when Dalton has, like, ten. Maybe it is indeed because he's comatose, and that makes it even more inviting. I mean, at this point, it's been well over three months of him outside of his body. So, yeah, the word's gotten out. Everybody knows in the further to go looking for this boy. You know, we've glossed over in this conversation the entire conceit of this movie. Which, when I saw it, and they revealed it, when Elise shows up and reveals, the big secret is astral projection. 
immediately my heart sank. <laughs> really? Astral projection? That's going to be the source of all your scares? I kind of like psychic ability. You know, if you're born with the shine, then so be it, and you're going to have ghosts following you around. But the fact that you're out there looking for ghosts in a spirit form, I remember... I couldn't tell you the title. Maybe one of our listeners can come to the forums and tell me. But some movie I saw in the very early 80s when I was like six about a prepubescent boy who could leave his body and be invulnerable and be able to see dangers and spy on his girlfriend and teachers and things and communicate with ghosts. There takes away the danger if your spirit is out there, it's a spirit. You can't harm a spirit. Yes, in this case, they're going after the vulnerable part of the body left alone. But really, I think it's a weak premise. I, I just don't like it. Uh, don't take away the only thing that's original about this movie. I mean, this is what they're <laughs> proud about. And you listen to the screenwriter and the director talk about what they were doing. They were boasting about the fact that no one had ever done this before and that this is what everything hinged on. Up to this point, we're cribbing from everything you've seen before. We're now going to a place you haven't seen before. It's a little quirky, but we've had plots like this in recent years, out-of-body Avatar or Inception. We played with the whole idea. Nightmare on Elm Street, for that matter. In dream states, are you in the same amount of danger as you are in waking, playing with that reality versus dream world? Well, here it's reality versus spirit world. I, I can go with it, but I don't love it. I had to look up what it was, because I was still kind of unsure exactly what astral projection entailed. Is it something I could just fall asleep and boom, I've done it? No. We need to do a shocker retrospective if you want to talk some astral projection. I guess it's just a single movie review, not a retrospective. But, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I just don't like this as a conceit. I just think it removes danger. I prefer the body and soul to be in danger together instead of the bodies in danger and the souls out there floating. It, it removes scares. And the moment they said it's astral projection... This movie lost its effectiveness. I had really enjoyed that portion of the second act, but as soon as she gives her reveal, and I'm on the edge of my seat, I want to know what it is. I want to hear about the beast or the demon or whatever you're going to call it this time. And once she goes astral projection, it's like they just flipped a switch in me. Well, I'm going to mention the movie Exorcist because this is where it really starts to come into play. The, the boy does get possessed. We get one scene of Dalton rising out of the bed and kind of yelling at him or, or something here when they have a seance. Question. What seance do you wear a gas mask to? God, I thought it was Dr. Satan from House of a Thousand Corpses. I mean, that mask gets... It adds to the mystery and allure, and if I was this kind of person, a medium or a Ghostbuster, I would play up all the weird stuff. I think it doesn't help that they let us see the bottom of it when they put it on her, and it looks like an elephant trunk. I like the look, don't get me wrong, it's plenty scary. I mean, whenever you depersonalize someone by putting that kind of mask on them, it always works for me. But Marjorie, you'd only put on the mask if you were a fraud, right? If you were trying to con people, you'd be like, yeah, we'll do this and I'll talk through the tube and you'll transcribe. There's no reason why she can't just hear the voices and say it and him write it down here. The mask is just like a, a touch that is so unnecessary. 
I get from IMDb trivia that what they're doing is ripping off the comic book Sandman, the not the Spider-Man villain from the Raimi movie, but Neil Gaiman's original Sandman comic wears almost this exact mask, and he's a master of dreams. Oh, okay. Well, cool comic book reference, but you need to justify it. And maybe that's my beef of the entire movie, is that so many good-looking things aren't justified with any kind of backstory. I did like the end of the scene, though, because, first of all, I like when the guy's writing and it gets more frantic and more dangerous. It's bringing me back in. Astral projection, you had me going away, but this is starting to bring me back in. You got the flash bulbs for no apparent reason other than to create a mood, but it's creating that mood. And then the boy does wake up and comes out, and I'm like, yes, I'm getting my child's play. He's going to play with them now. And no, he just, like, uses the force to knock them back and goes back to sleep. Well, I think we'll have plenty of other movies to talk about evil children, uh, you know, certainly when we get to some of our Stephen King. Yeah, but I wanted it here, and instead I don't understand why the spirit was able to take control of the body short term. It was able to lease but not buy. <laughs> His credit wasn't very good. We don't even know, was that the demon? Yeah, it was the demon because we see Specs with the camera, and he plays the footage back, and we see it literally puppeting him. Okay. You'd think Specs would write smaller, though, too. I don't think he had any control. I thought he oh. might have been possessed. It was hard to tell. It does not help that they immediately jump to Poltergeist 2 for Act 3 when Josh enters the spirit world. I just went back to our Poltergeist 2 conversation, which the people who donated a couple of years ago for our spring retrospective, hopefully you've heard, or if you got our DVD, you've heard. In Poltergeist 1, Stuart summarized the ghosts are attacking the house. Poltergeist 2 is called The Other Side. And we had this conversation about when they go to the other side and how much we just preferred if they'd stayed on this side. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's always hard. You're projecting heaven, hell... Those kinds of conceptions are difficult to do, particularly on a $3 million budget. I think they do it wisely here. I think the whole idea of making it the same as suburbia, making photography different. He floated. Originally, they were going to have him float around, and they dropped that. I think that was wise. But making it not dissimilar from the world we know, like it's just a unseeable layer of our own reality. That's how it's treated here. Yeah, when he floats out the door, it looks like he's being dragged on, like, a skateboard or a dolly. He probably was on yeah. a dolly. You got it. <laughs> I saw the behind the scenes. Yeah, that was amusing. I really hoped that was the way he'd be going through the rest. I mean, if you have a man on a dolly being scared by a man who smeared lipstick on his face, that's comic <laughs> gold. This is where it got really strange. I will admit, I agree with you, Stuart. I like that the further stupid name, looks like a neighborhood, and it's something real. I mean, I suppose it plays psychologically for me that a disembodied spirit would create a vision of the ether to be the familiar, a house, and that he's just wandering around all these ghosts, kind of good. And yes, it does look much better than that never-ending story blue screen cloud from Poltergeist 2. Had Poltergeist 2 been a lantern in a dark house, I might not have laughed as hard. The lantern trip through the weird house with the drag queen and the people who get shot is just all very bizarre and not scary at all. This is where the movie lost me. And I had 
zero interest in this once they got to the demon and the demon did nothing. Well, you mentioned the drag queen. Well, who was the drag queen? The lady ironing. That was a man, baby. Oh, okay. I, she she was barely lit there. I don't know what that was. But yeah, we see this family. A father is whistling, reading the paper. There are twins. One of them decides to get a shotgun and shoot everyone else. I don't know why. And they're all so happy about it. Yeah, the grinning. Again, I hate to keep using the word poltergeist, but I just think of clown. You know, the idea of smiling as being a way of being scary here. Twins, I'm seeing recycling of shining. I'm seeing things I've seen before. You're right, Marjorie. This stuff isn't particularly good. Yeah, especially since it's completely new behavior. I don't get this. Is this like a temporary place like in poltergeist where they hang out? Why are they doing this? It seems almost like a fun house. I, I did not get this at all. And the demon's up there, like, sharpening his claws and sewing. <laughs> well, I get that. I do get that. The demon lives in the attic. That is where he first encountered Renee and Dalton. That the demon is confined to the attic. That is what I believe. And that once he saw Dalton, he was going to possess him. That's where he got the idea for it. But this doesn't make any sense. Why is he confined to the attic? Why is he sewing? I like that whole trick, though. I mean, I like the idea that he's a marionette maker. I don't know exactly what he's making, but there's puppets there. And, you know, we saw him puppeting the child around there. He's That's a classic conception of a demon. Demons manipulate us. They create scenarios in which we follow their will and get trapped. I, I think it's very classic. The whole idea that he's red with a forked tongue and hooves and all that. You know, this is a very familiar conception of evil. A little too familiar. Am I the only one who was having a flashback to the evil formerly known as Freddy? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Taff Cap. Oh, yeah. Because he's chasing a little boy. He's yeah. even chasing around a bed. He's wearing a dancer's outfit. He's got a forked tongue. I was really getting some Wes Craven's new nightmare off this. That's never good. Taff Cap was really scary, though. He was the best thing about new nightmare here. I think it's a good callback. If you're going to take something, yeah, take something that was scary that didn't work. I'd rather them do that than to take... Great scares from great movies and pretend like we shouldn't know where they came from. And it should be pointed out, before he gets to the attic, we see a return of the stringy-haired skeletal guy. There's actually a fist fight or something. The father has to actually do something here. I'm not sure what would have happened if he lost, but it's showing him more as an active character after spending most of the movie remote, aloof, and not present. Are we supposed to understand that the reason he was so aloof was because he was brainwashed to suppress himself? I hadn't thought about that. I just really go back to that he was a jerk. And there had to be a reason he was a jerk. I mean, what made him do this? I, I'm still asking why. And maybe that's my problem. But maybe the screenwriter should have asked why. Because, yes. I mean, they're not going to give us an answer. You can project anything you want, astrally or mentally, into this movie. But... It's not in there. And I'm with Marjorie. I think this could be seen as almost a redemption story. He was an absentee dad who preferred to be at work than deal with home life just because that kid never stops crying. And this is him having to make good for it is actually step up and take responsibility. Okay. Well, I don't like these sub demons or ghosts or whatever they are, but I'm relieved when we finally get lipstick face. I wanted to see this battle. He had the scariest jump in the first half. I want it to be a showdown in the second half. I do agree with you, though, Stuart. I wish the ghosts in this further 
had a freaking point. I wish anything in the further had a point. He's looking for his son. Are these people trying to stop him? No, they're completely unaware. Why are they acting out murders? Is it something they did in their life? Are these dead people? Are these demons? I wish that there was something there. Not that I necessarily wanted Elise to have even more exposition, but yes, if it was a smaller group of spirits and now he was in their land. Again, another Nightmare on Elm Street reference, like when Maggie went into Freddy's brain in the final nightmare, you know, he's now in their land and they can't touch him. I would have enjoyed that a little more, but I can't even tell which of these ghosts I've seen before. Yeah, I noticed the stringy hair dude, but I don't know the consequences like you said. Having some definition to this, using this as an opportunity to give us the backstory of the demon would have been awesome. The way it is, it feels time-wasting. One thing I hate when he's exploring the further is he sees things like a red door. And then they cut to the crayon drawings that Dalton did, and we see a red door. And this is telling us, the audience, why Josh is going to that door. I don't see anything else around. Again, I think this would have been a wonderful Edgar Wright type thing if when Dalton was awake, we saw him coloring this stuff. And if you were watching the movie a second time, you see him coloring a red door or a horse. And then later you see a horse. It really looks like Josh is, to use a video game terms, on rails. There's only one place for him to go. There's one door and there's eternal blackness. So obviously (laughs) he's going to go to the door, whether or not he remembers a color drawing. Yeah, it would be nice if there had been left clues in the drawings. It's it's nice. It's always frightening when little children give us crayon drawings of something that's scary and portentous and all of that. But you're right. He didn't need to have seen them to know how to get to him. I thought it was talking down to the audience to actually insert scenes of those colored drawings in the middle of this dream sequence. It killed the mood. Well, it is PG-13, Arnie. They are trying to tell a story for all ages. And here's the problem, though, with that, is when it's PG-13, you don't get the good scares. I don't know. Wasn't the ring PG-13? And Poltergeist was PG. I mean, I'm not so biased as to say that you need an R in order to work, but I do feel in these moments, as you're saying, they are dumbing it down. I gotta say, though, a musical choice worse than anything else in this film. Tiny Tim tiptoe through the tulips? That is not happening as a scary theme that is never going to frighten me. No, but what they were trying to do is using that old-timey sounding music to add an element of creepiness. A lot of times in haunted houses, I don't know if you go to haunted houses, Stuart, a lot of times they'll take you through like a living room setting or whatever and play that old, weird, whiny music. Like a phonograph, yeah, like a mono sound. Yeah, yeah I love that. I usually, It's effective, but Tiny Tim, again I say, tiptoe to the tulips is never going to work. In Dreams tried it with Don't Sit Under the Apple Tree, you know. I mean, they try whatever. Yeah, Fallen had uh, that Rolling Stone song, Time is on My Side. I've seen many horror movies try and fail to make something that's a pop song into a, a scary theme, and this is the worst. Sometimes it works. I will never hear Knights in White Satin the same again after Halloween 2. A movie I didn't like, but that scene was effective. But yeah, here, tiptoe through the tulips. How about stomp out the door? (laughs) Yeah, and, and they do. They've got to get back. That's the rush. I do not know what's going on at the house where they left their bodies. There's a bunch of thriller demons that are coming up and... And everyone's really concerned that they're going to grab the bodies before they get back. But since it's all under the 
puppeteering of the demon anyway, I don't think they have a shot. I'm not worried about that. It just seems like they have nothing for everyone else to do. The thrill should be about watching father and son run through this spectral neighborhood trying to get into the house. It doesn't make sense, though. First of all, why is the door of the house locked? Yeah. Wouldn't you prepare for that? If Elise is a good medium, wouldn't she have prepared for this and made sure the door was unlocked? I'm just having a good laugh at Tucker, who has, like, the world's largest flashlight. (laughs) And his whole job, Tucker's whole job, is point the flashlight at Josh, and he can barely do it. Uh, go into the light, Carol Ann. Carol Ann. Didn't you expect that at some point, at some point, least to try to offer them up to save others? No, I, for some reason, I didn't anticipate that thing, but why would she do that? I mean, you're right. That would be a dimension unexpected for this character. It would have been nice to have been surprised in this final act, because this is pretty rote here. A red-faced demon hissing and chasing people, and ghosts going, woo, and... It is kind of lame. It's not offensive, but it is feeling like the PG-13 horror movie I didn't want. And Josh staring down candelabra ghost there with the veil. Why doesn't he just push her? He pushed string-haired ghost and that really took care of that demon. Why doesn't he just push her instead of just yelling at her? None of these make sense. And, you know, how was he able to defeat the demon so quickly? The string-haired ghost. And the lady he's able to deflect by yelling at her? I think they really missed an opportunity to have him recall that childhood. We're, we're told that it was suppressed once he saw the photographs. What if they flooded back to him? That would have been a moment to tell us who this woman was. That would have been a moment to show how she had power over him and how he couldn't do anything about it. You needed to build this up between Veilhead and Josh here at the ending. Because I'm paying attention to the red-faced demon. None of the other ghosts matter. But they're supposed to. We're supposed to really think that this is also a showdown for Josh and the woman that wanted to possess him in youth. Did you get fooled? I did not. As soon as the bodies come back awake, I actually, I probably spoiled it for Marjorie and our friend who was watching it with us, because I'm like, so is it them and their bodies? Yeah, see, I would have been okay had Arnie not said that, because it seemed like a very tidy, neatly wrapped with a bow end, and it was too easy, especially when Elise gave it away, obviously, and then grabbed for the camera. That's when I'm like, yep, all right. They left it wide open. And I didn't ask trying to spoil it. It was just me, literally, I'd missed so much in this movie, I felt, at times, such as the baby's name, that I really was wondering if I was supposed to know the answer to this, because it was not definitive to me that either one made it back to the body. It seemed like a race for the kid's body. I'm still not convinced Dalton is back either, but the way the movie ends, Dalton shows no sign of being evil. Whereas Josh apparently can never have his picture taken again without committing homicide. That's going to be really hard in this camera phone age. I'm just going to warn Veilhead. She (laughs) might not want to leave the house. Making the Christmas card is going to be a bitch. That's for sure. How how are they going to do this? How does this even have a sequel? This feels like because of the way that they do this. Moments after being rescued. It's all exposed here, right? I mean, they're going to have to deal with the fact that the wife knows her husband just killed his mother's best friend. She knows everything, right? I mean, she sees a corpse. She picks up the camera. We know that that camera has the footage of Josh looking like the old lady. We know she's screwed. If he's not going to choke her right then and there in the next moment of the movie, then 
you know, they're going to have to at least go to marriage counseling because she's got a new partner. And the only one who knew what to do about anything is dead. And yet she's coming back for the sequel. I haven't seen it yet. It is out in theaters, but I did read the poster lineup and Lynn Shea is coming back. Maybe as a ghost. Who knows? I saw that she's coming back too, and I'm very confused as to how they're going to pull this off. They can't make it a prequel, obviously, or maybe they do when they go back to when he's a little boy. I'm betting that, actually. No, no, no. I, I'm predicting a shining scenario. They've ripped off Poltergeist enough. Now it's going to be about a father terrorizing his children. Well, we'll find out next week. But for this week, so Marjorie, Stuart, do you recommend Insidious? Marjorie. I'm torn because it's so much like Poltergeist that it, it is a classic ripoff, in my opinion. I did not enjoy the movie, but I also didn't enjoy it where I feel I need to go back and see it again. I'm going to give it a mild recommend just because it did have some jumps, but I don't like ghost movies, and it gets a big fat zero for not making me sleep with the lights on for the last four nights. Yeah, we have a ghost, and this still didn't do it. <laughs> Stuart. Like you, Marjorie, Poltergeist ripping it off is not going to get me on your side. Bragging that you're from the people that made Paranormal Activity and then doing Paranormal Activity for much of this movie without a plot, not going to get me on your side. What is going to win me over is the way that this film is made. In its individual moments, James Wan knows how to scare us. He is not a horror master, and he has not made a classic. He's made a copy a tracing of a classic. But you can see it in Saw. The man knows how to set traps. And individually, there are moments that really work for this film. There were enough of them for me, even when they felt familiar, even when I knew I was stepping into that trap, it would get me. And so that's why I can give this movie a recommend. It's not a great film. It's kind of a lousy script that leaves way too much unanswered. But it's a good jump fest. And I think that it's great that new audiences have something to, that is PG-13 that they can go see. They have their poltergeist to enjoy. I would have loved this movie when I was a young kid and like it as an adult. So yeah, recommend. And I'm going to go weak, not recommend. I really agree with what you guys are saying about this. I do like the Poltergeist callbacks. That said, they're a little bit too obvious, too lazy. The fact that a family of five, three ghost hunters, all they needed is somebody ripping off his face, which I would have liked. But the first act is so slow, and the third act is so inane. You're probably wondering how this is even a week not recommend. But that middle, the haunting portion, is so good. It makes me know they could have really done something here that I would have loved. And they just didn't do it. I'm not a fan of the astral projection. I'm not a fan of the further and the way it was visualized. And I think a strong cast and a good middle act carry this to where it's not a total waste of time. But... It's certainly not anything I recommend you see. There's so much else out there. This really let me down, especially by the end. But that said, God, Lee Winnell, I walked out of Saw and I'm like, that movie was ridiculous. But man, if I don't want to know what happened at the end. And I'm the same way here. I'm right there with you, Stuart. I am very curious what is going to happen in Insidious 2. Is it going to be the father hunting the kids, will they take it in such a different direction 
where it's not haunting anymore? Is it going to be something so classic man versus man in that way? I don't know what they can do, but I want to find out. I just hope we get a little backstory this time. The challenge is, particularly for Wydell, is to justify all of these things you have not explained yet. We're owed. At this point, you're going to make a sequel and tell us more story. We deserve answers about what Veilhead is and why she wants Josh. That's what I hope to see. But yeah, I'm curious. And obviously, with this being a recommendable movie, I'm hoping they can keep it up. I hope it at least matches what they did. Well, we'll find out next week. And listeners, let us know what you thought. Head to our forums. There's a link from nowplayingpodcast.com. And also at nowplayingpodcast.com is a banner at the top that talks about our current donation series, where if you want some really scary horror, let's not talk Insidious. Let's talk Hitchcock. Psycho, it's out this Friday. I agree. It's a classic. Everyone knows it. We're finally getting to dive in. I haven't done Hitchcock yet on Now Playing. We haven't really gotten to the root of slasher movies. As many as we've covered, we haven't done the granddaddy or the grandmother of all slasher movies. And we're finally doing that this Friday. Please, if you can, if you can find the funds, find them now for Psycho Series. It's going to be a great time. True classics, and so not classics as we get into some of the sequels. Movies of varying quality, but a really interesting franchise that I think is going to inform so many of our other podcasts that we've already released and now playing. It is our gold level donation. That is a donation of $25 or more. For that, you get six Psycho reviews. Normally, we just do three at the gold level, but we're going to go six Psycho reviews, including the 1980s TV pilot Bates Motel and the Gus Van Sant remake. And you also get the five Simon Pegg Nick Frost movies that are included with our $10 silver donation. So if you can't do 25 for 10, you can hear us review Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz, The World's End, Paul, and Attack the Block. All the details can be found by clicking the banner at the top of nowplayingpodcast.com. So Marjorie Stewart, thank you for joining me. You bet. You're welcome. And now, leave this podcast! Leave this podcast! Leave this podcast now! Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. You called me here, and I'm taking that as an acceptance of my readings. Find hundreds of movie review podcasts at our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Saw, Friday the 13th, The Avengers films, Star Trek, and more. I'm going to need some time alone to concentrate. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where the hosts post new episode announcements and written movie reviews. I'll get on that this afternoon. I'll have to come too. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. What choice do I have? Got to pay Dalton's bills. You can also help out Now Playing by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. A link to Now Playing's iTunes listing can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. Please help him, please. Now Playing's Insidious Retrospective Series is edited by Arnie. They crave life, the chance to live again. 
Now playing credit narration by Brock. It's the most important part of her process. Ah, that's debatable. It's not debatable. The Insidious films are the property of their copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. And did you really believe that would help? The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Inganza Media Incorporated. Why are you looking at me like that? You think I did this? Now Playing is a Vinganza Media production, copyright 2013, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. Come on, let's get out of here. Where's my notes? They're in the attic. I'm Arnie, the haunted Oscar winner Barbara Hershey. Hershey, yeah. Oscar winner Barbara Hershey. I can't say it. (laughs) She calls in Elise, a medium friend who once protected Josh from the ghost of a veiled woman. Not a large friend? (laughs) But, you know, uh, it's Lynn Shea. We'll we'll talk about it. (laughs) It is my favorite movie from childhood, maybe borrowing alien... I cannot speak tonight. It is my favorite movie of childhood from... I got a plane. Hold on. A very slow plane. (laughs) A a crashing plane? My God. What's going on? (laughs) Oh, I hear it. That would be be awesome if that crashed and we had it on tape. Yeah, as long as it's not into my house. But that would be be awesome to have on tape, too, for other reasons. (laughs) Thanks, guys. Imagine the donations we'd get. Stewart's last <laughs> recording. Why is it crashing? Wow. I'll be hanging out with that old man in your house thinking you pay for that comment. <laughs> All right. Did become about Joanne. Jo- it did become about Joe Beth. Well, yeah. Well, I was getting some exorcist vibe as well. Just plain. I think it's circling. <laughs> Hold on. It's going to take two crashes. <laughs> it's trying to get it right for you, Arnie. Wait, wait, that angle wasn't right for the best audio pickup? Hey, let's switch to a video podcast real brief so I can record that. <laughs> okay, I think I go. Um, but what was I saying? Of course, I've forgotten at this point. Leave this podcast! Leave this podcast! Leave this podcast now! Okay, pretty good. Now, what you don't know, Stuart, is I get to hear this every Tuesday night, just variations of this screaming and yelling and... <laughs> And it makes the dogs go crazy. And oh, Arnie. Um, actually, uh, on some of the behind the uh, actually on some of the behind the feet uh. behind Lorraine Renee Renee no oh the mother okay it was behind the son though oh behind the kid Josh behind Josh fuck it <laughs> what they call him in the supplemental material is red. F- Oh, no, they want to say that again too. Supplement. Yes, yeah, yes. <laughs> it sounded like you were belching material. <laughs> what they called them in the supplemental. And there's a chalk drawing of Billy the puppet from Saw, and then he wakes back up, and Billy's gone off the chalkboard. I don't know what Billy from Saw is. I it's, did see it's Saw, the puppet but... that you were with me when I bought the toy. It has the swirlies on the, the puppet. Cheek. Oh yeah, yeah, sure. Uh-huh. Swirlies on the cheek. That's a good one, Arnie. Yeah, but I know what you mean. Okay. 
It was an urban myth. I remember it being told that, yes, there was a ghost in Three Men and the Baby, and no one noticed until the movie was released. It was completely fraudulent, but yeah, I remember it. Yeah, my sister actually is the one who got paid $250 for selling that story to the Inquirer. <laughs> um, and she's been scamming the world ever since. But, not Spectre. Uh, Tucker? Not Carlos. Who's Carlos? Yeah, wrong movie. I was looking at Spencer and Carlos. Um, Who's Spencer? <laughs> Arnie, we're watching Insidious. <laughs> Come back to us, Arnie.